Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci Advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. And so what we do is we put together compositions, meaning more than one. In the case of 1125, it's five amino acids and one derivative called NAC that are designed specifically to intervene on multiple pathways simultaneously. So this is the distinction between what has been a revolution in life sciences around single targeted approaches. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Benchtop Bios, a podcast series by LifeSite Partners, where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, my guest is Bill Hinshaw. He is the president and chief executive officer of Accela Therapeutics. Bill, welcome to Benchtop Bios. Thank you, Neil. Great to be with you today. Okay, as always here in Benchtop Bios, I'd like to start off with a quick read on the company in question. So, Bill, elevator pitch for Accela. Where are you headquartered? How long have you been in business? What sort of business do you do? Okay. So we're headquartered in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right on the river, and we have been in business since 2011. And we're a clinical stage biotech company that was founded by Flagship Pioneering. And your listeners will be familiar with Flagship as the founder of Moderna. And at the core of all of those companies is a big transformational question. And ours is what if you could restore health and homeostasis in complex diseases through using endogenous molecules. And that's exactly what we have done multiple times. And we have two important programs in very large, growing, and unserved populations. The first in NASH, where we're in a global phase 2B trial, and we just reported out really important uh, interim analysis data just in September. And really importantly, in the growing, emerging crisis of long COVID, specifically fatigue, where we demonstrated important data, improving fatigue, and are eager to advance that since we're leading in that field. Excellent. Now, we'll get the full download of Accelo's technology and clinical programs in just a few minutes. But in keeping with the mission of Menchtop Biles, let's first get to know a bit about the man in charge. Bill, that is you. Let's start at the beginning. Where are you from, guy? Well, I'm an army brat before I became a corporate brat, as the family story goes. So I was born in Virginia, but I lived about six, seven places, including San Francisco, before we moved to Memphis, Tennessee for my mother's career. So my daddy is a pharmacist, a PharmD, and he was a ROTC pharmacist, which is why we ended up in the military. And then we got out as my mother completed her PhD in virology, and we started in Memphis, where I was there until I was a senior in high school, and then I moved to Madison, Wisconsin. Okay, we're going to get to Madison in just a second, but first, that's quite a backstory already. I have to ask you, did you have a childhood hero, a sports figure? I mean, you moved around sports a lot, could any team, <laughs> I don't know, movie star, a, a general, I don't know. Yeah, so believe it or not, I had 
two main heroes in my life at that juncture, which were Louis Pasteur because oh of my, my God, you nerd. Yes. Well, my mother knew what she wanted to do when she was eight years old and read the book Microbe Hunters. So she sat me on her lap and would be practicing her presentations and her things. So I got exposed to that as a catalytic figure in science. And the other one was my granddaddy, Pops, because of what he did for the family, how he served everybody else and showed incredible gentleness and care for my grandmother who was suffering from Alzheimer's. So those were my two heroes. I was a fan of the Packers and the Memphis Rogues, a soccer team that we used to go watch. But, you know, the big ones were science and my family. Well, I can see the science angle because you did head off to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and you majored in molecular biology. This school, for anyone who doesn't know, is very heavy in the sciences. They discovered, or researchers there discovered, vitamin A and B in 1914, as well as how to enrich foods like bread with vitamin D. And there was also one, some interesting work from a Dr. Carl Link on a new type of rat poison, which was (laughs) then repurposed into a human drug. Do you know this one? This is the test. I'm afraid I don't. (laughs) Ah, Coumadin. Ah, Yeah, which, you know, my grandfather took her half his life. And it's still up on the market. And anyway, the upshot of all this is there's an enormous endowment at the university there to fund all our going research. But you decided after undergrad, that was enough bench work for you. And you went to be a rep. Why leave the bench? So first, I had the benefit of growing up with my two parents, right? One, a PharmD who ran both hospitals and managed care pharmacies. And that was my daddy. And then my mother, who was the virologist who actually moved to Madison so she could be dean of the graduate school there. But I had seen my mother doing the grant writing, doing the other aspects. And openly, while I was accepted at med school, I determined not to go. And part of it was because I am a very curious, broad person. And I knew that doing a singular sort of experiment at a lab was probably not going to tap into my (laughs) experiences, Mm. skills, and my mindset. Now, I was playing professional beach volleyball at the time, but I was smart enough because of injury and (laughs) and other dynamics to recognize that wasn't a long-term career. And openly, Neil, my daddy said, look, you have a science background. You can talk. Some company is going to think that that may be helpful for you. Why don't Mm. you look into pharmaceutical sales till you figure out what you want to do instead of graduate school? And I shadowed some reps. I talked to doctors. I talked to them. And I thought this was very interesting because I got to interact and engage with a variety of people. And I got to talk about science and making a difference for patients, which is something I'd grown up. When you your mother's at St. Jude's, your daddy is at Methodist Central, you're exposed to patients. And my mother thought we could help some of the children on the wards of St. Jude. So my brother and I started playing with them since the time I was six years old. So the chance to make a difference and communicate that on scale was something I set out to do as a rep in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and went from there. All right. Well, you worked in the Shearing Oncology and Respiratory Disease franchises, and you were there for a good long time. You climbed up the ladder there after nearly 14 years there in New Jersey. You left in late 2003, and your title then was Oncology Business Unit Head. What size of team were you running? 
So we had about 150 people at that point in time. We had three important products, including temozolomide for gliomas, interferon, which had a nine different indications in oncology, as well as uh, ulixin for prostate cancer. Now, to your point, I had a great start to my career at Sharing Plow. They were very entrepreneurial. They took a lot of development on the job for people. So in that time, I also had 11 jobs. And I was fortunate that Kathy Hurtado, who was running the what we called the OBU at the time, Oncology Biotech Business Unit, identified what she saw in me as talent, put me through a rotational program to give me exposure across marketing, analytics, market access, and sales leadership, and that catapulted my career at that point into the next step. So it was a tremendous opportunity to learn a variety of therapeutic areas, importances around how you could understand customers and how you could take action decisively. So tremendous growth opportunity. I want to pick up the last bit of decisive action. I know General Eisenhower, he didn't like business because <laughs> people will question your judgment. But you can fire people, which you can't in the Army. Do you remember the first person you had to fire? You had to learn how to do that? I do. I was a district sales manager. It was a difficult event because you think about the person, their family, their effort. And I do think, Neil, there's a big difference between firing somebody for truly poor behavior that's egregious at a level that requires that and somebody who just doesn't have the skill set. Yeah. but maybe making the effort and have the will. And so always want to do it thoughtfully in terms of for the people, but also one of the critical aspects is you're leading a team. And at the end of the day, you need to achieve as a team more than you can achieve as an individual or set of individuals. An anchor, whether that is because of will or skill, can hold back a high-performing team. And first you see, is there an opportunity within the organization that fits, that's better if they have the will, but sometimes you have to make those decisions. And unfortunately, over the years, I've had to make that decision more times than I would like. Well, with all those skills in mind, you did leave sharing in 2003 and you left New Jersey as well. You actually relocated to Basel, Switzerland and became the global head of antivirals uh, we now reference your mother's work again. This was at Novartis. I mean, that was a hell of a switch. What was the driver there? You had kids yeah. by then. Yeah, no, it was a tremendous change and it was purposeful. So first you, you mentioned my mother. My mother's lab had international scientists from the Soviet Union because that was there at that point in time, France, China, Germany, South America. And it taught me at a very young age when I was going to church camp and picnics with uh, a series of international scientists, how curious and open that was in terms of their bravery to come to the U.S., do these things. And that stimulated that interest in different cultures to me. I also love to learn from different approaches. And so going to Novartis, which was a very different type of company than Sharing Plow, was a tremendous learning experience because Sharing Plow was a decentralized, international franchise, very rapid decision-making, no pre-reads, get in the room, talk it out, make a decision and act. And I'm simplifying it, but more that generalization. Novartis is an incredibly skilled company with a lot of strong analytics, very thoughtful decision-making while still being decisive in key areas. 
And it was also a different dynamic as to what mattered. Was it your experience or was it the benchmark? What data could you draw upon? Not to mention going from a U.S. focus to a global focus. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what we did in the infectious disease antiviral business was build it up. So it was like a biotech starting up in a $100 billion market cap company because we were seven people when I started with that team. Oh, man. How's your German and or French? Ambition. <laughs> I understand better than I speak. My German teacher in high school said, you can write it, you can read it, you can understand it, but Lord, you can't speak it. Oh, and that pretty much translated over. Now, my boys are fluent in German, oh, wow. uh, but more Hochdeutsch than Swissy Deutsch. So. <laughs> oh, okay. 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 So anyway, 14 years in Novartis, but then you had to excel it in 2018. I'm a little puzzled by this. You, you have a very long background at two very big, very successful companies. I'm sure people were scouting you. You could have gone to J&J, could have gone whatever. Mm -hmm. Why this? Yeah. First, let me acknowledge and appreciate that Novartis was an amazing company to work for. I had a chance to work on a global scale. I led the U.S. oncology business. I ran 90 countries around the emerging and developing markets across all nine of their businesses. So a remarkable opportunity to see healthcare across the entire spectrum. To your point, you also have an opportunity to have a lot of skill, resources, and experience to paint on a big canvas. And that was something that I am grateful for and participating in launches like Gleevec, Kimriah Cell Therapy, many others, was a tremendous learning opportunity. At the same time, and I was recruited to go lead large organizations at other large pharma, I made this choice for two reasons, Neil. One was on a professional level, I wanted to really look towards innovation. When you have had the opportunity to launch Gleevec or Kimriah, you don't want to work on incremental advances, which can be right. important for patients, right. but you want to work, especially at a stage in life like this, on something that could be truly transformational. And that's what attracted me to Excella, which we'll get into in a minute. But so I was really saying, okay, now is the time. I have the leadership experience, I have the perspective on drug development, and I want to translate my experience for innovation in science to reach patients. Okay. Access is a really important part. And I saw that biotech in a specific segment of biotech offered that potential. Now, I also happened to be going through a major life change with a divorce. And my ex-wife had supported me through many international moves and a lot of effort. So I'm grateful for that. But I wanted to move up to Boston and participate this on a personal level. And those two things came together. Now let's talk about this innovation, which I really want to get into because it's actually something I've never heard of. And I thought I've heard of most everything. Your lead asset is AXA1125. This drug belongs to a drug class that, I, again, I, I'm not familiar with. It's called Endogenous Metabolic Modulator, or EMM for short. Mm -hmm. Bill, what's an EMM? <laughs> so it is exactly what you articulated, an endogenous metabolic modulator, something that works with the body system to restore homeostasis. And in this case, these are compositions of amino acids and their derivatives because these are powerful master regulators and signaling agents that are also substrate for how the body works. And so the EMM aspect is a description more of what they drive, which is they naturally restore 
your body's homeostasis. And so what we do is we put together compositions, meaning more than one. In the case of 1125, it's five amino acids and one derivative called NAC that are designed specifically to intervene on multiple pathways simultaneously. So this is the distinction between what has been a revolution in life sciences around single targeted approaches, right? Where you're looking at either a dysregulated binding site, a pathway, and you want to antagonize or agonize that particular pathway. In this case, we're looking at complex diseases where there are multiple pathways that are dysregulated. And so single targeted therapy is going to be limited in that case and unable to achieve a holistic disease modifying approach. So we know that there is a long history of amino acids, hormones, bile acids. These are all EMM type categories, but we put together these compositions to address specific pathways, such as fatty acid oxidation, inflammation, vascular perfusion, mitochondrial metabolism, all at the same time. So think about it, Neil, simply as combination by design, and that's how we approach our science. Forgive me if this question is, is a little too dumb, but uh, <laughs> amino acids, what if I just have a really big dinner? How is this a drug? So this is absolutely a drug, and it's a drug because it has impact at a therapeutic level that is designed scientifically to address those things, and everything is at GXP level, meaning good manufacturing practice, good mm -hmm. clinical practice, good laboratory practice, and we're conducting these trials in an IND or CTA setting. So think about it fundamentally. Again, hormones are things that your body naturally uses. Why is it a drug? It's a drug because you have to manufacture it, have the right quality, and it has a therapeutic level of impact that should be administered under a physician's care to treat a disease. Okay. We're exactly the same. And in fact, that is what we have set out to first test. Could we have the biological impact that we anticipated? And the answer is yes. And we have replicated that time and time again. And that has led us to the point where we're in advanced stages of development, meaning global phase 2Bs about to launch a potential registration trial in long COVID. And we have executed, this is a distinct aspect, Neil, because these compositions are generally regarded as safe constituents, we have tested in a non-IND but FDA regulated setting in the most relevant setting possible, which is subjects who have the disease to understand the biological impact. What that allows us to do is understand, yes, this has potential therapeutic application and advance it into an IND CTA setting. And that's what we've done. But we do it on the back of tremendous information. We have functional information. We have safety and tolerability information. We have dosing information. And so what that has done for us here is make the early part of development very efficient timeframe-wise, more importantly, informative. And that's why in less than four years, we went from design to global phase two Bs in phase three in this program. Super I'm going to ask you about that protocol, that program in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about the market here. I mean, obviously, millions of people are affected by COVID. What sort of patient numbers we're looking at for long COVID? Yeah, it's very scary. There was an article recently that said, we are in trouble. That was the title of it. Because let's go to the numbers and then the need. So we're getting 
closer to 600 million confirmed cases of COVID. And I use the word confirmed mm-hmm. on purpose because we know it's dramatically underreported, even within my own family, for instance, we'll see a distribution of that. Hmm. Of that, the best estimates are that roughly 20 to 30% are one in five people have long COVID, meaning they're continuing to experience symptoms well after the acute infection. And of that, the majority report fatigue. And that's what we're tackling with 1125 specifically. And Neil, this is not a light fatigue. This is a severe fatigue because the patients, in essence, what's happened here is the virus has come in. It's hijacked the mitochondria as viruses do to make more virus. That's their job when they infect a host, right? My mother has taught me deeply this, literally from her knee. Okay. (laughs) And in that setting, what ends up happening is some of the patients recover, but there are some patients who are stuck in that cycle because what's happened now is the fuel switch is onto glycolytic fuel. It leads to an inflammatory state and it leads to a situation where there is issues with oxygenation, glycolysis, and inflammation. So now the cells are in a survival state. They really can't function, and the bioenergetic part of it is not able to respond. Now, why do they experience this severe fatigue? Think about high-demand organs, skeletal muscle, the brain. They're not able to respond with the energy that they normally do. So 1125 comes in and we're able to reduce inflammation. We're able to improve vascular perfusion and oxygenation, and we're able to drive mitochondrial metabolism, mitochondria being the powerhouse of the cell and the energy source. And now the cells can respond. So this is what we're trying to do is to restore these patients to normal health because it has been taken from them. These are college athletes who are being dropped off at their front door. These are physicians who are unable to practice. And this is translating into what a recent Time article talked about as potentially the biggest mass disabling event in history, Hmm. because we already see more than a million Americans disabled by long COVID, and we see up to four to five million out of work already. And the infections are continuing. And unfortunately, no one is immune from long COVID, right? We are all tired of the pandemic and the impact that it has had on us societally and individually. These patients do not have the luxury of moving on. And unfortunately, we're going to continue to see this arise. All right. And I'm going to ask you about the protocol for 1125 in just a moment. But I'm going to preface by saying that it's a little hard to run a trial in an utterly novel setting. I think we can agree COVID is that particularly when you talk about what kind of endpoints are you looking at, you know, or that you can go back to work or, you know, it's kind of arbitrary. So walk me through the trial design, if you would. Sure. Yeah, let's start with this issue because what we looked back at was what are the pathways that are developing in long COVID, right? And what are the pathways or biologies we've been able to affect with our assets and could we design something? And that's where we arrived at 1125 as being the best candidate to move forward in the near term. Now. Again, this is a common post-viral infection issue, meaning the fatigue and the pathways that are dysregulated. What we're seeing in the case of the pandemic is obviously a short period of time at a massive scale. So we had good anchor points to go and investigate. What we did is we created, in essence, three layers of endpoints and measurements that we wanted to do to inform our development step forward. And we worked with the University of Oxford 
because they are a world leader in COVID, long COVID, and mitochondrial function. So we had a set of biomarkers that we were looking at for mitochondrial measurements as well as inflammation and adhesion markers. We had a key set of other muscle health measures such as lactate. And then we had clinical measures. This is a case of the chronic fatigue score called the CFQ11, which is a validated FDA regulation tool in the chronic fatigue syndrome okay, area, as well as six-minute walk, which is a functional measure. Because what we're trying to understand is mechanistically, could we show the change in this population that we wanted to? Could we show biomarkers moving in the right direction? And then we were optimistic that we could see trends in the functional measures because that would allow us to then power and identify how we would move forward in development. And we were incredibly pleased by the results. How large a uh, trial was it? So this was a 41-patient trial or subject trial comparing AX1125 to a placebo. And we're able to do that size of trial because of the types of endpoints that we are measuring and the change that we were expecting to see. Okay. And as you mentioned, results have been posted fairly recently. How did you do? We were absolutely thrilled to see a clinically relevant and highly statistically significant impact on fatigue. And this was both physical and mental fatigue and the total fatigue scores. What's also important here, Neil, is not only was it the stats in the direction and on a magnitude that were quite profound, but we saw that this was across the vast majority of the responders in the cohort because 70% of the subjects had a clinically meaningful change in their level of fatigue and very little in the placebo. So it was not an evidence of a placebo effect. And to put it in context, the average time these patients had been suffering from a moderate to severe level of fatigue was 512 days. Mm. And in just 28 days of dosing, we were able to to make that important move for 70% of the patients or subjects. And really critically here, Neil, was 13% of them normalized. Because the study, the CFQ11, which again is a validated FDA-supported measurement tool, asks you, how do you feel versus your norm? Not how do you feel versus seven days ago, are you seeing improvement, which can be important. But in this case, 13% of the patients in just a month of dosing were back to their normal self after 512 days of suffering. And that's pretty remarkable. And when we shared that data with the physicians who care for these patients, as well as the patient groups themselves, that was a revelation for them and an offering because there is unfortunately very little in clinical development for long COVID and fatigue. And we're leading the way there and understand the opportunity and the obligation we have there. Okay. I got a couple of follow-ups here. The first is talk to me about durability. You've dosed for 28 days and the trial was over. Was this curative? So we don't know the answer to that yet because of the nature of the design of the trial. Mm -hmm. That is something we will study in the planned phase three trial, which is our hoped for and planned for next step that we plan to initiate early next year after regulatory feedback that's coming both from the MHRA and the FDA this year. So we believe that this is a product you could take for a relatively modest duration for most patients. We're planning on testing roughly three months of therapy, and then we'll have to understand, are there some patients who need longer 
in order to recover? Or is that adequate for these patients to restore back to their normal selves? You mentioned there's very little in development for this issue, which you also mentioned or emphasized is a massive problem. Has the FDA given you any signals that perhaps there might be expedited review or give you help in some way? We believe we fully qualify for some form of expedited review. That will be a matter of discussion with the agency. We've already had early indications of that for the MHRA. So we understand that this is a very large issue. There are no alternatives. And the governments understand how important this is. You see the White House, the HHS, the FDA, the NIH, all putting resources behind this and departments that they're organizing around it because of the magnitude, scale, and impact on society and the fact that they see this as a sustained issue. So we will be working with all of the regulatory agencies to expedite this as fast as we can at the right level of rigor. And that's why we're being so proactive and moving as fast as we are. Okay. One more question related to this. I'm going to move on to Nash. The last question is, you mentioned the phase three. When does that kick off? So we'll take the steps with the regulators and assuming we're moving forward with that phase three, which is our plan, that could initiate in the first half of next year. The team has done an excellent job of getting ready for and planning very actively, and we take every day seriously. So we look forward to initiating that post the FDA and MHRA feedback as soon as we can. All right. Now let's move on to NASH. This is a very serious problem, non-alcoholic Pronounce it for me. Steatohepatitis. Thank you. (laughs) Huge problem in the U.S. because we're getting just fatter and fatter every day and and people can have this issue. They have a lot of other issues, but this one's quite serious. Investors on this call will know a lot of people have tried to drug this. A lot of people have failed to drug this. So we're going to talk about the possibilities now. These Mm -hmm. are two very different disease states. Why is one drug going to help? with the crossover mechanism here? Yeah, so let me answer that and then get to the nature and size and scale of the disease need. So in essence, it's an overlap in key pathways. Okay. So fatty acid oxidation, okay, your energy cycle, your mitochondrial energy metabolism. Inflammation plays another critical role in the setting, as does vascular perfusion and adhesion. So these are all parallel pathways that we identified and used the data from our NASH trial to then share with world experts in long COVID fatigue to evaluate and understand that, yes, indeed, 1125 could play a similar while distinct role in long COVID fatigue. Hmm. Now, in terms of NASH specifically, yes, it's very large. There are estimates of 40 million Americans or more, one in 10 American children unfortunately, are estimated to have this disease, which is devastating because this has also become the leading cause of liver transplant. So the seriousness Mm -hmm. is there, especially over a lifetime, right? Now, to your point, NASH is a very complex disease. There are multiple drivers of the disease and the pathogenesis thus needs to be addressed by either a combination, and again, we're combination by design, Or you're probably going to have target engagement, but not necessarily disease impact. And that's what we've seen in some of the other well-intended development programs in this very large disease area. So, for instance, when you think about metabolism, 
we're targeting AMPK. We're targeting PPAR alpha. We're affecting the urea cycle. Those are all part of the pathways we modulate. Inflammation, you're talking about HIPF1, NF-kappa beta, gut barrier junctions, Mm -hmm. as well as TGF-beta and others in fibrosis. And so what sets 1125 apart in all cases is this multi-targeted, safe and well-tolerated oral profile. And that's the design we're going after for all of our candidates. And in this case, we're able to simultaneously intervene on each of those key biologies, unlike single-targeted therapies, which are trying to drive down a metabolic pathway or to shut down inflammation or fibrotic measures while the disease insult is continuing. And that's why we think we're well set up to be a first-line therapy for these patients and potential differentiation in populations like type 2 diabetics, where we demonstrated important impacts on this very large population, as well as adolescents. All right, so let's go to the data itself. As you mentioned, we have a reveal recently, actually just a couple of days ago, and we're recording on November 2nd. This did come back from the IMPACT study. That's what it's called, E-M-M-P-A-C-T. And you have some data here. So if you could please first briefly describe the protocol and the exclusion criteria, because these people have comorbidities, and then give me a top line on what you observed. Sure. So the trial is our third trial in this population. So we had two previous trials where we demonstrated consistent impact across metabolism, inflammation, and fibrosis. And then we initiated the impact study, as you said, a global phase 2B. This is in F2, F3 uh, NASH patients, biopsy confirmed, and they have a NASH score greater than four. So when we look at the demographics of these patients, they're pretty significantly diseased patients, right? Yeah, and consistent yeah. with what you see in that field. Now, you mentioned they have a lot of comorbidities. This is a really important aspect about how you would treat the population. On average, they're coming in on five to seven medications for cardiovascular or other diseases. Wow. And so the type of product and the risk benefit becomes really important when you think about actually treating patients versus doing drug development or how investors will look for milestones or specific measures. And that's where 1125 sets itself apart as well. So these patients, we really kept it, again, in the F2, F3 sort of stage. We include type 2 diabetics. They need to be reasonably controlled. And we exclude a couple of the mechanisms that could potentially complicate the measurements and assessments we're trying to do. But these are very typical, relatively high fat, relatively advanced patients that were in our impact study. And we were very pleased on the results that we showed where we demonstrated market leading levels of impact on liver stiffness, which is a measure of the fibrosis comparable with the best in the field. We continued to show important impacts on inflammation, ALT, as well as liver fat. And we continued to show an excellent safety and tolerability profile. So we were very pleased with the results that we showed recently. All right. I don't know if I mentioned this was an interim readout. When do we get the final look? Yeah, so this was an interim analysis when roughly 30% of the subjects passed the 12-week period, and we reported both 12- and 24-week data. This is a 48-week study where we will have the top-line data in 24. Mm -hmm. 
And we look forward to continuing the enrollment and efforts on understanding the science and the patient population here. We saw comparable results between the non-diabetics and the diabetics in this interim analysis, which again is encouraging because those are notoriously difficult to treat. Okay. I just have a few more questions. This AXA 1125, we've obviously covered that extensively, but we haven't talked about anything else. So Mm -hmm. is this one and done or is this a platform? No, all flagship companies are a platform technology. And what you can take from that is when it works, it will work well and at scale. Think about the applications that Moderna is now pursuing, Denali, Foghorn. There's a number, including our series. And in our case, we're in a situation where we have a platform that can rapidly assess the biologies, put together compositions, and then test them in the patients and subjects with the disease. So we have 1125 in multiple indications. We have AXA 1665, which has already been developed up to a phase two stage in patients with hepatic insufficiency, looking at hepatic encephalopathy and or muscle function and frailty. So that product, we're ready to move that forward when we have the right opportunity and resources. We have other programs that we have developed and we have a number queued up. And I want to go back to long COVID in this case in fatigue, because it is not, Neil, like we discovered the very specific issue of long COVID fatigue by itself. Again, this is a post-viral infection phenomenon and set of pathways that are well-characterized. Programs like our disease areas like CFS or ME as it's known, chronic fatigue syndrome, Epstein-Barr, other elements, you will see this occur in a fairly significant number of patients. So we believe there's other opportunities that we can tackle and understand in that area, as well as other fatigue-based approaches. And of course, in NASH, there are a spectrum of disease, and there's other populations we could look at, plus 1665, plus we have other candidates that we're ready to move forward when we have the right level of resources to accommodate that. All right. Two more questions. The first one's slightly cynical, but I do I have to ask these things? Amino acids are not hard to come by. It strikes me that you could pretty easily knock off this drug. What's your IP position like? So our IP position is excellent. And to put it in context, they fit the criteria for patenting. They're novel. They're unobvious. They're useful. All right. And we have composition and method of use patents on our lead programs already in place. And we have a global patent estate in process. Our general counsel is the former intellectual property head of all of Novartis Pharma. And so from this standpoint, we feel very good about our ability to appropriately protect our innovation and receive the support from that. I can get into the technicalities of we have a three-pronged strategy, including composition method of use, mechanistic, and manufacturing, that we patent both the core and the entity, which prevents the workarounds. And I'll use this as an opportunity to state something that I think is really important, Neil. We're administering this product at the highest quality levels, and we're able to provide it in a very small sachet that you pour into four to six ounces of water, shake and drink, have excellent mouthfeel, palatability, and taste, and thus compliance. This is grams of material. So if you were to try to go out and gather unregulated, not clear quality. Number one, it'd be incredibly difficult to do. Number two, you'd be violating our patents. Number three, 
it would be a massive quantity that you were trying to ingest. Yeah, right. And it would cost you far more than a regulated drug through a copay. So from that standpoint, we feel very strong about our position. And uh, forgive me for waxing on about this. I've managed <laughs> countries all over the world and seen every possible workaround. And we feel very good about where we are. Excellent. All right. And now a question for the bankers, which is money. Can you give me an idea of your current runway? And we're coming up on JP Morgan in just a few short months. What kind of conversations might you want to have in San Francisco this year? Yes. So we have the benefit of having excellent investors, flagship, Fidelity, Nestle Health Sciences, Harbor Vest, Michigan, and others. And they have supported the company on an ongoing basis. And recently we did a registered direct offering uh, where we brought in a little over $32 million into the company. That takes our cash runway deep into next year. And we have a agreement that takes us into the toward the end of the first quarter. Now, between then and now, we have a series of milestones. We have the FDA feedback, we have the initiation of the trial, and we have other important steps that we'll be doing forward. So we're going to be very active at JP Morgan, both with continuing to talk to investors because we were able to bring in five new investors into this raise, which in this current marketplace is a pretty wow. significant move, as well as we have a lot of inbound interest, both from investors and corporate potential partners because of the scale and opportunity of these programs. And again, I'll stress that we feel that we're doing complex, hard, but important work, and we're doing pioneering work. We're doing complex compositions and complex diseases, but we have the back of information in terms of the science, the foundation, and our clinical and mechanistic data. And now we're positioned to move forward into a registration trial for long COVID fatigue. And it's not very often, Neil, I've had the opportunity to work on some amazing programs. And we've mentioned uh, Gleevec and Kim Raya, mm. but there are others. That temozolomide, interferon, ribavirin, you know, uh, really revolutionized hepatitis C, right? led the transplant organization at Novartis, a remarkable chance to help patients in that setting. This has a chance to be the leading solution for a major public health crisis to achieve potential blockbuster status and do that very rapidly. And that's something we're excited to help fulfill. All right, ladies and gentlemen, investors, should you meet with Bill anytime soon, I urge you to ask him about something we did not have the time to discuss today, and that is his experience with Kim Raya, somebody named Carl June, and a little girl named Emily Whitehead. Hmm. Otherwise, today that is a wrap. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Henshaw, President and CEO of Excella Therapeutics. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Neil. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of Lifesize Benchtop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to ncanadad at lifesciadvisors.com. Until next week then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell, whatever boosts your portfolio.